The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're going to have a fine time with wine. We're speaking about the origins and future of wine yeast with Erica Shimansky. But first, we'll take on the history of wine with Kevin Bigos. Pour yourself a glass and settle in. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And I'm here to admit today that I don't know a lot about wine. I'm that person who walks into the store, looks for something below a certain price, and is more inclined to buy it if there's a cool animal on the front. Ooh, look! The label's got a koala! I love koalas! <laughs> I probably should not treat wine so flippantly. The humble fermented grape goes back thousands of years in our culture. But if you think the ancient Romans were sipping Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, think again. There's far, far more grapes on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our modern philosophy. Here to help us trace through the grape vines of history is Kevin Bigos. He's a former correspondent for the Associated Press who has written for Scientific American, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and more. He is also the author of the book Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine. And he definitely does not pick wine based on the animals on the bottle. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Bethany. Thank you. But I do have to admit that maybe once a long time ago, I did pink wine based on the labels. <laughs> I mean, koalas are great, right? They're great. They are. Yeah. Now, let's start with a pretty basic question. What is wine? That sounds like a simple question. In general terms in America, it's something made only from grape juice. But if you look at the legal definition, even here in America, you can technically call something made from like pomegranate juice, also call that wine. But in France, you can't. Um, in most places, it's considered something that's made only from grape juice. So it can't be pomegranate, pineapple, pineapple wine would be kind of cool, I think. <laughs> The the Romans used all sorts of fruits, uh, and people in the ancient Middle East made all sorts of fruits, uh, wine out of all sorts of fruits, but not so much today. When did that become a thing? When did we say, okay, it's only wine if it's grapes? You know, there's records even in colonial America of people making pomegranate wine and uh, you know wine from other fruits, but it really faded out in the last hundred years. And for those of us who pick wine by the animals on the bottle – how is wine made? What happens to turn grapes into wine? That's one of the wonderful scientific things and historical things is it almost just happens automatically because there's wild yeasts on the skins of the grapes. So if you just left a bunch of grapes in a container and they got kind of smushed and juice collected in the bottom and you left it there for a week or two, it would start to ferment and the grape juice would turn into alcohol, into wine. But in kind of modern methods of making wine, there's also there's you know ways to age it. Things get aged in, according to your book, concrete and clay. <laughs> so what does the process look like now that it's no longer really due to chance? Well, now it's become, in many places, very industrialized um, with great stainless steel containers and temperature control and industrial yeasts that are just like a packet of yeast that you can dump into the wine, uh, just like you would buy packets of yeast for bread making. But believe it or not, there's still a lot of people that still make wine in the old-fashioned way of just crushing the grapes and even letting the wild yeast do its thing and 
maybe even making it in clay containers like it was made thousands of years ago. And let's talk a bit about grapes. How does the type of grape matter? Is it, you know, green grapes make white wine and red grapes make red wine? That's partially it, uh, the color of the wine, but there's an astounding diversity of flavors among different grape varieties. There's big differences in sugar content and also in the um, tartness uh, of them. Some wine, some wine grapes are so bitter that you couldn't even make a wine out of them, but you could blend a little bit in, like adding pepper to a dish. Um, others are very sweet. Others are, you know, kind of a classic mix of a little bit of sweetness, but mostly tart. So there's literally hundreds and hundreds of flavors that can come out of grapes from hundreds and hundreds of grapes. And are these grapes different varieties, different species, different breeds? Well, they're almost all uh, different varieties of Vitus vinifera, which it looks like was domesticated around eight or 9,000 years ago in the Caucasus Mountains uh, from wild grapes. There's still a few places where the semi-wild grapes are used or might have inbred with the uh, Vitus vinifera grapes. But pretty much all the grapes all over the world from Italy, France, and the Napa Valley and uh, Finger Lakes of New York are from these Vitus vinifera different varieties. Now, let's talk a bit more about the origins and the beginnings of wine. People might think, I know I thought, uh, that wine came from, say, the Levant because it's in the Bible. Um, or maybe people think it becomes from France because, you know, they know a lot of, about wine. They're good at wine. Mm -hmm. But you just said that wine actually comes from the Caucasus in Georgia. What do we know about when and where people started making wine and how do we know it? There's archaeological evidence of wine containers from 8,000 years ago in the Republic of Georgia and uh, a full sort of cave wine production facility in nearby Armenia from 6,000 years ago. And that all kind of jives with the DNA evidence, which shows that the wild grapes started changing, you know, the DNA and the family started changing into these domesticated grapes around eight or 9,000 years ago. So uh, old shards of pottery and uh, archaeobiology, which, you know, takes tiny little residue samples from thousands of year old pottery and tells you what kind of chemicals was on the original container, you know, was originally in the container. And it sounds like we transitioned really quickly from, you know, maybe the happenstance of some grapes, you know, fermenting by accident to, you know, massive large amounts of production. What draws humans to wine or to alcohol? Well, there's a lot of evidence that just that feeling that people love now really enticed people uh, across many cultures thousands of years ago. Uh, it was almost a religious thing. People didn't know really why this juice that you can drink just straight, you know, pressed grape juice, well, it tastes kind of nice, you know, it's good on a summer day. But then once it ferments, you get, uh, you know, this alcohol buzz. I mean, it's a drug, no question about it. And people didn't exactly know where that alcohol came from or why they felt different, but they sure knew they felt different. And you mentioned there was this big wine production. And when we picture grapes now, we think of these big, beautiful, fat, juicy clusters of glorious table fruit. Is that what grapes have always been like? What were the earliest wine grapes like? Well, the earliest ones were these wild grapes that people started picking out that were certainly much smaller. The fruit wasn't as fat, would have had a big pit. 
uh, and just a little bit of fruit around it. So just by selecting the bigger, fatter vines over hundreds and then thousands of years, we've kind of created this modern grapevine that we see now just by domesticating it and picking out the bigger, juicier versions. But the wild grapes are not anywhere near as big or juicy. And was it only domesticated once? Is there evidence that we, you know, people in various places may have figured it out a couple times? It looks like it did happen in various places. That's why kind of the DNA trail of wine grapes gets very complicated. It doesn't lead back to, you know, one exact variety, but more to that whole region. And there's even evidence for kind of a slightly different type of wine over in China around the same time, eight or nine or even 10,000 years ago. Uh, not from the same grapes, um, but a kind of more jasmine wine or sometimes mixed with a rice wine. So it looks like all along perhaps the Silk Road, the uh, western portions of the Silk Road, that it could have happened at various points. And this has actually made more interesting the domestication of the wine grape by the fact that grapes do not reproduce like we might think they reproduce. <laughs> Can you tell me how grapes have sex or rather how modern grapes don't? That completely stunned me to learn that whole story because it's got two or three weird twists. Wild grapes are almost all typically male and female. If you had a bunch of wines, vines, about half of them would be male and half of them would be female. You know, some have pistols, some have stamens. About 5% of wild grapes are hermaphroditic, where they have both pistols and stamens on the same flower. And it looks like that early humans, Neolithic humans, realized at some point, hey, these particular vines always have grapes on them because they don't rely on the wind or birds or bees. They just self-pollinate. So pretty much virtually all the wine grapes in the world, there are a few little tiny exceptions, are descendants of those hermaphroditic grapes that we selected probably eight or 10,000 years ago. Um, so they self-pollinate. Uh, they make their own fruit. And then we added to that by probably starting as far back as the Egyptians. We started reproducing wine by cuttings, which is essentially a way of cloning or grafting. You make a cut of the branch, you graft it onto some older rootstock, just like you can do with roses. Um, so people didn't plant them from seeds because that changes the flavor profile. So not only do, do we stop the, the vines today from mating with other nearby wild grape vines, but uh, we pretty much keep them exactly the same. We don't even let them reproduce from seed. Is there any accidental mixing? Like, do wild grapes every so often get some of their DNA in there? Yes, it looks like that happened a lot more frequently, probably up until the late 1800s. Um, agriculture used to more... You know, they weren't these neat, precise rows of grapes we see now. You know, the old-time agriculture might have seven or eight different varieties of grapes in the vineyard, early ripening ones and late ripening ones. And even the French would mix those into like a field mixture. Uh, so this whole idea of like a whole hillside just covered with Chardonnay or Merlot is a little bit more of a modern development. It used to have more of a mix. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I was really interested that there used to be all of these different kinds of wine grape. Um, how many kinds were out there? Like, how many do we have? Well, we know from a great book called Wine Grapes by Jancis Robinson and Jose Vuillamo that there are at least 1,368, um, and certainly actually probably over 1,400 that 
uh, we have records of being used to make wine. Uh, some of those are only surviving on a few acres in little spots around the world, like in the mountains of Switzerland or uh, little spots in Italy or even France and the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, but up until that period of the late 1800s, wine was much more regional. The Greek people drank their Greek wine. Uh, the people in the Middle East drank their Middle Eastern wine from Middle Eastern grapes. Uh, you know, the Swiss drank theirs. And then, especially after World War II, it all started getting more homogenized and more international. One of the things I loved about reading your book was reading the opinions of some of these historical peoples on other people's wine. <laughs> yes. They'd be like, oh, I can't touch that Greek stuff, man. It's awful. <laughs> People have always had passionate feelings about wine, dating back to the Sumerians and the Egyptians and uh, definitely liking some of it and not liking others. Now, you mentioned that in kind of modern times, winemaking has come to be dominated by a few types. It's kind of become homogenized. And that's partially due to something in the 1800s called phylloxera. Yes, it was an uh, basically an insect plague that wiped out vineyards across Europe, uh, across France and many other countries. And it came from American rootstock that had been imported that had this uh, tiny little creature that basically lives in the roots of the vines and then goes up and attacks the whole vine and kills it off. Well, American wild grapes developed a natural resistance to phylloxera. You know, they can survive it, but the European grapes didn't have that. So they just got suddenly wiped out around the 1860s and 70s. It was a huge crisis in France. They spent a good deal of time figuring out even what had happened and finally grafted all the old European varieties onto American rootstock. And that worked. But what also happened was so all these tens or hundreds of thousands of acres of vineyards die off. When they replanted, they started to just replant with those half dozen or a dozen varieties. They started to weed out the old local grape varieties and just focus on the famous ones. And that picked up even more after World War II. Why did it pick up more after World War II? You know, partially the old small farms started dying out. There were even... Uh, early European Union uh, programs basically paying farmers to rip up what were seen as these old, less productive grapevines and sometimes turn them to other crops or just plant the most productive varieties. It was this kind of surge of both government and academic advisors saying, hey, you know, if you want to be a successful winemaker, plant Cabernet or Chardonnay. You know, they're the most productive. They're the most well-known. You'll make the most money. You'll make the most wine. Uh, so they actually paid people to rip up some of the old vineyards. And so when we talk about different kinds of wine today, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, other Cabernet, <laughs> we're talking about specific grape types. Yes, that have been reproduced by these cuttings, by clonings for hundreds or even more than a thousand years. Uh, Pinot is likely more than a thousand years old from the genetic evidence. And it hasn't had sex in a thousand years. Well, technically, you know, it self-pollinates, but it hasn't been allowed to have sex with other grapes, which is kind of a sad little story. I mean, you know, it produces its own fruit each year, but it's not, you know, allowed to date or get married or have children. Out, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just does its own thing. Um, when so, you think about it, does that mean that we've been drinking the fruits of grape masturbation for like a millennia? 
Well, you know, that gets to one of those deep scientific and philosophical questions over how you define hermaphroditic grapes. And I just think of them as, you know, another wonderful thing out there in nature. Um, uh, but you could sorry. think of it that way. But you could think of it that way. <laughs> now, we talked a little bit about how grape diversity has been declining. People are planting the grapes that make money, which are the grapes people recognize. Is that changing? There's a movement the last 10 or 15 years where a lot of small producers are embracing their own regional wines, and especially Greece uh, really resisted the call to plant French varieties. Italy has. And the Caucasus Mountains, too. They had a big decision in the early 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed over whether to you know, turn to these Western grape varieties. And they said, no, we're going to stick with Saparavi and Riscatelli and Kisi and Misvani and all these strange-sounding grapes. And in the long run, it's worked for them because now they have this unique product um, that wine critics are starting to say, hey, wow, this is something different. Um, this is worth seeking out. Now, I mean, they do taste different and they probably taste good, but why is it important to preserve local grape varieties? Well, you know, the great uh, Israeli-British chef Yota Matalingi kind of summed it up, summed it up that it's similar to uh, heirloom vegetables or any other local food. You know, the local grapes are tied to the local traditions. Um, I find that they tend to pair better with the regional food. But not only that, they have some of their own disease and pest resistance built in. Or, for example, the, the grapes from the Middle East, from somewhere like Israel, uh, have more heat resistance, you know, natural heat resistance than other grapes. So that could be a, a factor for climate change, you know, as we face a hotter world, that we need some of these, you know, sleeping genetic traits that are still hidden in some of these vines against both heat and uh, drought and pests and insects. And your book talks a bit about the history of wine, but it also talks about what influences how we taste wine, how we buy wine. And I was particularly entertained by the bit about music. How can music affect the wine we buy? Well, they did a really tricky uh, blind test where they had, I think it was a supermarket or a wine store where they monitored people's purchases, where they were either playing music from uh, German composers or French composers and they in the background music you know, and they found that the background music actually changed you know what buying trends people had not completely it's not like everybody stopped buying uh, German wine when they were playing French music but it had a noticeable statistical impact and then other people you know decided that certain wines go best with say certain pieces of Mozart's or uh, other 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 music so the background music and the lighting and even the price on the bottle or the label on the bottle uh, has an effect on what people think the quality of the wine is i'm thinking of most north american wine stores now and places where you buy wine and i'm wondering you know this was this was all very highfalutin and hoity-toity german composers versus french composers i'm wondering how whether or not you have ariana grande pumping over the grocery store speakers changes what kind of wine you buy i bet you it does i absolutely bet you it does but i don't think that study's been done yet <laughs> well we've got work to do clearly clearly now is there music for red versus white wine Yes, uh, in blind tastings, uh, different groups, 
you know, t- had different uh, supposedly preferences. But, you know, scientists point out this is kind of all happening in our heads. You know, it's bringing in our cultural preferences. You know, it's not clear how much of this is what we taste and how much of this is what we expect to taste or want to taste. Well, we're going to find out because you have sent me the most delightful thing. You sent me a bottle of wine and it's a bottle of wine that features very heavily in your book. So today is a great day, listeners. It is the very first science for the people wine tasting. Mm -hmm. We're going to do this with a little bit of science. So I'm going to get my nicely, carefully chilled wine here. And while I open this up, can you tell me what it is we will be tasting? We are tasting uh, a wine from Cremason Monastery and Vineyards, which is in Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. And that's the winery that kind of inspired my whole book, because I tried one of their wines in 2008, and nobody had heard of it. I couldn't buy it here back in America. The critics kind of said it didn't exist. But they were using these strange grapes with names like Jandali and Baladi and Hamdani um, and Dabuki. And I thought, you know, what the heck are those? You know, that's certainly a long way from Merlot and Riesling and Cabernet. And, you know, over the next 10 years, uh, scientists started researching them and doing DNA analysis. And it turns out that those grapes, certainly at least the ones we're tasting, the Hamdani and Jandali, look to be two or 3,000 years old. Um, wow. Maybe even a little more. So early, much earlier than any of the French grapes, um, you know, that they are native grapes of the Holy Land. All right. Let's see if I can get this open here. That's what I thought. Okay. All right. Science. The sound of science. Oh, my goodness. That smells fantastic. (laughs) All right. So I'm doing this the right way with science. I am queuing up some of the music that you mentioned is pairs best with white wines. This is a white wine, which will be paired with a Carnegie Hall performance by the Ensemble Connect of the Mozart Flute Quartet in D major. As opposed to Tchaikovsky, which might be better with red. Ooh, good to know. All right, so I've got my flute concerto going. I'm pouring a little bit here. Oh, the smell is very, mm, it's very, very fruity. Am I saying this right? Am I doing this right? What am I supposed to do? Can you talk me through this? You're supposed to just sniff it and smell it and taste it and tell us what you feel. And there's not really that much of a right or wrong way. Although if you swirl it around in your mouth a little bit in the beginning, that lets the aromas go more up into your, uh, you know, your nasal passages, which is actually where a lot of the, what we call taste happens in our nasal passages. That's how the brain senses things, not just the taste buds. All right. So here we go. Let's see. Mm. Wow. That with the Mozart and everything, it, it tastes so classy. <laughs> I feel so adult. <laughs> and and that's a that's Jandali and Hamdani ma- wine made from Cremason cellars. And a lot of people, when they first hear about this wine, they think, "Well, gosh, that must be weird or taste terrible." Or and no. I agree with you. I think it's it's a very classy wine. Um, we could see whether we taste different, you know, fruits or overtones, but. Uh, it's a very elegant white wine. Let's see. I think I taste, hmm, this is hard for me. I think grapefruit a little bit. You know, I taste grapefruit too, although some other people call it apricot, which might not be that far, you know, I, away. I can see some apricot, yeah. And I taste a little bit of lemon, sort of, there's a first grapefruit juice and then an aftertaste, which is a little, 
I'd say more citrusy, more lemony than orangey. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, that's nice, and it's not—it's not so light. It's just—it has a little bit of weight to it. It has a little bit of weight, and you know that's really kind of how experts judge wine. I mean, I find this to be a very nice wine. It's not, you know, the super most complicated, wonderful wine in the world, but it's not just a you know average bottle of Plonk or. You know, it has some complexity to it, and you hit on it. That complexity is just sort of a couple of layers of flavor and some depth to it instead of just being like, boom, a little hit of alcohol or sweetness, and that's it. Um, so that's kind of the difference between what critics really love in wine and just the wine that gives you a little buzz of alcohol is the complexity. And your book focuses a lot on getting people to try these native grapes, or at least grapes they've never had before. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there who are like me. They don't know a lot about wine. They just want to pick something that tastes nice and that makes them look like they're not an idiot. <laughs> mm -hmm. What piece of advice do you have for novice wine drinkers? I would say follow your own interests and history. You know, if you're from Italian-American heritage or Jewish heritage, you know, ask about these Middle Eastern wines. Or if you're Greek heritage, you know, there's a nice way to dovetail one's own personal history with the wines that your ancestors might have drunk. If Any good wine store in D.C. or New York should be able to help you find some of these wines. They might not be on the shelf, but if you say, hey, I'm really curious about you know, Austrian wines or the Caucasus Mountains where wine originated, um, and I just find it's a little more fun and less threatening way to explore wine. Like, you know, you could have a party, say, we're going to try wines from the Caucasus Mountains where winemaking began 8,000 years ago. And it would be a completely different experience. Um, and some, you know, you might like them or you might not. But, you know, other than trying to decide between 100 bottles of Chardonnay, which used to drive me crazy. I mean, I would literally kind of go brain dead when I walked into a wine store or in a restaurant and I see 20 or 30 or 50 of the same type of grape. It was like, how could I possibly choose which one? Well, Kevin, thank you so much for giving us this fabulous wine tour and tasting. <laughs> and thank you, Bethany, for, you know, going the full scientific route and doing this uh, semi-blind tasting on air. Uh, I'm impressed that we both tasted grapefruit. <laughs> I, I will do a lot of things for science. We've linked to more information about Kevin Bigos and his book, Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine, which, by the way, comes complete with many wine recommendations in the book at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Now, we humans do love alcohol no matter where it's from, but whether it's wine, beer, or other fermented beverages, none of them would be possible without a very special fungus among us, yeast. We'll be talking with Erica Shimansky about the yeast that gives us booze. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. After our wine tasting, we've learned about the power of grapes, but squashed grapes would just be juice if there wasn't a certain little microbe that turned it into wine. We've all heard of yeast. 
They're used in research. They're used in baking. They're used in beer and wine. They're in your privates and they're on your skin. But what differentiates one yeast from another? Could your skin yeast make beer? And if you could make a synthetic yeast, what does it mean to make wine from it? To break down the yeast beast, I'm here with Erica Shimansky. She studies interdisciplinary microbe studies at the University of Edinburgh. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, I wanted to talk about different kinds of yeast. We think of animals or plants as having different species, and sometimes we think of animals as having different breeds. Yeast have different strains. What is a strain, and how is that different from a species or a breed? Mm, good question. So first, yeast also have species. When we talk about yeast, and this goes for microbes in general, but let's stick with yeast. When we talk about yeast, colloquially, we're almost always talking about one species of yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's the yeast that's most responsible for baking and brewing and winemaking, though it's not the only one involved. On the other hand, we occasionally talk about yeast as candida albicans, which is the yeast that lives on your skin and in your private sometimes. So it's really important to distinguish between winemaking yeast and bread baking yeast. And I have a yeast infection yeast, two different yeasts, two different species. Um, you can't make bread with the I have a yeast infection yeast just to get that out of the way. Uh, but Yeast also have strains, and strains are more analogous to or more like breeds of dogs. So just like we have dogs that are specialized for different kinds of purposes, but you can interbreed the dogs and come up with a mutt, we have yeast that are specialized for different kinds of purposes, but they can interbreed and make hybrid and, and make baby yeast, and so we'll still consider those to be the same species. It's sort of important to realize, though, that when you get down to microbes, species distinctions don't work as well as they do for big animals because yeast don't always seem to respect that whole idea of, no, I'm not allowed to breed with that because I'm a different species. They make interspecies hybrids pretty often. And the boundaries of what's one strain and what's another strain or what's one species and what's another species depend on whether you're looking at DNA or morphology, the way they look, or their metabolism, the way that they behave, and the things they can digest. And it's all really messy. And whether something is or isn't the same species or the same strain ends up being debated a lot by microbiologists. But there are these different strains. Are there different strains used for things like wine versus beer versus yes. bread? Yes. Can you take like a sourdough <laughs> and mix sourdough wine? Uh, you can go the opposite direction, but not from bread to wine. So this is really interesting, actually. There are different kinds of yeast used for different things. Uh, first, we should start off by saying yeast live in the wild. There are yeast in oak forests in North America and Asia and Europe, and those yeast are happily hanging out doing yeast things all by themselves. Uh, but humans have been working with yeast for, oh, at least about 8,000 years and probably more like 10. Um, so a really long time. And over the course of us doing things with particular yeasts, we've developed strains that are good for particular kinds of things. So when you're making wine, winemaking yeast have, winemaking yeast are experts. They're, they're really specialized at what they do because grape juice first is full of a whole bunch of sugar. That's stressful. It's hard to live in an environment where there's so much sugar that there isn't a whole lot of water hanging around. It's called osmotic, osmotic stress. Yeast used for winemaking have to have an incredible uh, ability to tolerate that. 
then they have to ferment a lot of alcohol. I mean, some of the, the wines that are made in California, it's Infidel, get up to 15, sometimes 16% alcohol. Even now, ordinary wine gets up to 12 and a half or 13%, 14% often. That's really stressful because alcohol is poisonous. You have to be able to tolerate a lot of it. And then third, wine is really acidic. Um, all of this is really hard to deal with. So if you're a bread baking yeast, you don't have to deal with those kinds of stresses. You're not going to be able to if you're suddenly thrown into a vat of wine. You're going to die off pretty quickly. Uh, people are looking for different things in bread baking and in beer making as well. So in beer making, consistency is really important. Every time you open a Guinness, you want it to taste the same. But in winemaking, not only do you tolerate a lot of variety, you often want a lot of variety. You expect the wine to taste different from bottle to bottle from year to year. And in bread making... Right now, a lot of the things that people are interested in are, you know, how do I get um, yeast to tolerate freezing well so that when I buy that frozen pizza, the bake-at-home kind at the grocery store, it's going to rise and be nice and fluffy and crispy when I bring it home. So you mentioned that the yeast that are used in wine, for example, uh, people have been using yeasts and yeasts live in the wild. They live in oak forests, but people have been using yeast in their food for eight to 10,000 years. What do we know about the history of humans and yeast? Like how mm. did, when did this somewhat beautiful relationship begin? <laughs> oh, I think it's totally a beautiful relationship. Uh, there are two major forms of evidence uh, that allow us to make statements like we've been working with yeast for 8,000 years. Uh, one form of evidence is looking at the genomes of contemporary yeast, the yeast that we use in winemaking and other things, and their relationships to the genomes of the yeast that live in oak forests. So, so comparing DNA and DNA sequences and asking on the basis of lots of those comparisons, what kind of evolutionary relationships do we think exist? Looking back through time by looking back through comparison through comparing DNA, we can ask, all right, how long ago, based on you know the way that DNA tends to mutate and vary, how long ago do we think these two yeasts separated? And that's one way of judging that the bottleneck that indicates that yeast became or began to become domesticated probably happened about 10,000 years ago. Uh, the other form of evidence that we have is a lot more direct, though, and it's looking at the uh, remains of really early fermentation practices. So this fantastic guy named Patrick McGovern at uh, the University of Pennsylvania has something called biomolecular archaeology, uh, a biomolecular archaeology lab, sorry, uh, where he's looking for the remains of yeast and other fermentation organisms, so bacteria associated too, in you know, pottery remains in ancient Egypt digs or in the Caucasus, what's now Georgia. And on the basis of that evidence, we can say people were making wine around 6,000 BC. Wow, that's it's been a long time. And you yeah. mentioned that this is a kind of beautiful relationship. It's, I, I don't think most people probably don't think we're having a relationship with a single-celled fungus that we buy in tiny aluminum packets at the store, but we are. Can you talk about kind of the human yeast relationship? What is that exactly? Mm. 
So first, I would say, I don't think it's strange at all that we're having a relationship with yeast in the sense that, you know, I have a relationship with my desk. And we, we have relationships of a lot of different kinds with trees and with other kinds of organisms. It's not just about having a relationship in a, like, I'm talking to you and you're talking to me kind of way. But that said, I think we are talking to yeast and they are talking back. So there are some particular ways that yeast and humans communicate uh, that we can look at in you know, research practices and such. But we can also say... Uh, humans and yeast have a domesticated relationship. We have brought yeast into our homes or they've brought themselves into their home, into our homes. Um, one of the things we, we can, we can say that yeast is a domesticated organism on the basis of some criteria that are used to judge domestication across species. So there are some, some markers of, uh, domestication that rely on the way that the animal behaves or on its DNA that apply to yeast. And so we can say, okay, yeast is domesticated the same way that a dog is domesticated. Um, but there's some interesting questions around how that domestication happens and who precisely is being domesticated. On the one hand, we've used yeast for a really long time to serve our needs, to make things that are delicious. Um, on the other hand, you know, yeast is the most successful microbial species in the world by a lot of standards. There's a whole lot of it. And the reason why is because we've made so many great places for it to live and we've cultivated and we take, we spend a lot of time taking care of, uh, these, these environments we've created for yeast in our homes and in industries of all kinds. So, you know, you could say the yeast has done a really good job of encouraging us to take care of it. Now, we've domesticated these yeast, or perhaps they have domesticated us to do what we need, what do what they need us to do. But we use yeast in particular in wine, and this particular episode is about wine. How do, what do yeast do for us in wine? And how do they do it? Ooh, where do I start? So I start with alcoholic fermentation. Um, wine isn't wine unless grapes uh, are converted from a whole bunch of sugar into a whole bunch of alcohol. So the only way that that happens is through the actions of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, there are some other yeasts that are involved. And in, in particular, if we leave grape juice sitting around by itself without inoculating it with a particular commercial strain. So so think of the equivalent of you going home and making bread and you you dump that little packet of, of yeast from the grocery store into your into your bread. Winemakers dump little packets of yeast into their wine too often. But sometimes you don't. And if you don't dump a little packet of a commercial yeast, a yeast that you purchased expressly for this purpose, into your grapes, uh, that juice will start fermenting on its own with the yeast that are around. Those yeast are myriad. There are lots of them and they have different characteristics, but most of them die off pretty quickly once fermentation gets started because they can't tolerate much alcohol. Saccharomyces cerevisiae can take you all the way to your finished, dry, sugar-free, alcohol-rich wine. And that's what most people are looking for most of the time. The most important quality in a wine yeast is that it can take nearly all of the sugar in really sugary grape juice. I mean, if you drink grape juice, that stuff is really sugary. It can take nearly all of that sugar and metabolize it into carbon dioxide and ethanol. Now, I say metabolize it into carbon dioxide and ethanol because those are the two major things that happen. And in wine, in most wine, we're mostly interested in the ethanol. We let the carbon dioxide just evaporate or evaporate, just, you know, gas out of the wine and float off. Uh, we could get into sparkling wine but let's not for the moment. But in the course of doing this really important job of making alcohol, yeast are also making 
other things. They're, they're throwing off metabolic byproducts, these compounds that are made in much, much smaller quantities, but that are really important to line quality. So I could, I could run off a whole list of other molecules that, that yeast make, like amino acids and acetic acid and esters and aldehydes and acetaldehyde. And many of these compounds are really important to the way that our wine tastes. So if you look at a yeast catalog, there are catalogs full of different kinds of yeast that you can buy to ferment your wine or other kinds of fermented foods. Some of them will say, this yeast produces tropical fruit aromas. Does it really? Yeah. It's great. You can do side-by-side tastings of the same grape juice fermented with different yeasts, different packaged yeasts that have been selected and bred for these purposes. And they will taste different. You will have different wine and some of them will be tropical fruity and some of them will be more minerally and some of them might smell like like flowers while some of them will be lemony. Yeah, you get quite a lot of variety out of different kinds of yeast. So one of the reasons why people don't sometimes choose not to inoculate their yeast with a specific strain is because sometimes winemakers are looking for a lot of complexity. They want the influence of multiple kinds of yeast that might be in the environment and might happily come along for the ride if they don't add a commercial yeast that um, dominates the whole fermentation. And they're willing to accept the risk that, you know, whatever decides to come along won't be able to finish the whole fermentation. It won't, it, it will die off before all the sugar's gone or, or something will uh, we'll get in there that, that makes aromas and flavors that they're not so fond of. They're willing to accept the risk of that small risk of failure for the potential benefit of more interesting flavors. I just love that we've been talking about yeast and you note that wine yeast in particular have to be able to tolerate these really high levels of alcohol and the other <laughs> kinds of yeast die off. And so in my head, wine yeast are now the alcoholics of the wine world, <laughs> of you the yeast world. That. They're these, yeah. these sad little boozers. Well, but so, so let me turn that around because that's a really human centric perspective because you're thinking about what alcohol does for us. Um, alcohol is toxic, right? And, and it's toxic for, for, for us as well as for the yeast. But for the yeast, it's a byproduct. It's a waste product of their metabolism. So, I mean, if you wanted to be really gross about it, you can say that those yeast die because they're suffocated in their own excrement. That's even and better. And what you're saying is they're actually really, really tough little critters. I actually, no, wait, that's better. I like that. <laughs> I definitely always love the idea that, you know, the, uh, when we're eating bread and, you know, you get like the CO2 makes pockets, uh, your yeast makes your bread rise and makes these pockets. I love the idea that every time you bite into one of those, you're eating a tiny yeast fart. <laughs> and, and now you're, you're eating when you're, when you're, when you're eating the, al- drinking the alcohol and stuff, you're, you're eating yeast poo or yeast urine as the case may be. <laughs> Yeah, but we do. I mean, we do that a lot, right? There are a lot of microbes that we take for granted in our foods. I mean, the whole pickle trend, lactobacillus. I think it's really important to recognize that the norms that we apply to the relationships that we have with animals that are big like us, like you wouldn't want to eat dog poo, come on, are really different than the norms that we apply to microbes. And that sometimes it can be really useful to think about microbes in um, sort of big like us animal ways to try to understand what their life is like and what they're interested in or what they need. But it's really important to always remember they are fundamentally different and they're never going to fit into the boxes that we make for big animals. Now, you've mentioned that we are putting these yeast into wine and they have to be 
really tolerant to these high levels of alcohol and their own farts and that sort of thing. <laughs> but yeast also are in there and, you know, microbes, they multiply really fast. They have little bits of yeasty sex. They're splitting. Are they mutating? Is their DNA changing while they're in the wine? And how much does that matter? Because I know for a lot of commercial wines, like the ones I tend to buy with the animals on the bottle, you know, <laughs> we're looking for consistency, not for exciting new flavors. Ah, well, so Bethany, you can do better than this. We're, we're, we're going to have to introduce you to some better wine. But that's a really good question, because it really depends on what you're trying to do. And you've already pointed that out. So yes, wine, yeast, and other kinds of yeast that are multiplying in you know, environments we create for them so that they can do particular kinds of job, abs jobs absolutely change over time. Uh, this is how evolution works, right? So as you pointed out, yeast multiply pretty quickly. They go through a lot of generations. They're going to, going to accumulate mutations as they reproduce. The first thing to remember is that most of those mutations will not change anything about how the creature behaves. It's still going to keep on doing its thing because most mutations really don't have much effect. There's a lot of space in DNA between what we're currently calling genes, between the bits that, that are um, related to the way that the animal or the way that the yeast behaves. Uh, where you know, mutations can happen and it doesn't show up. Um, the other thing is, a lot of times mutations will accumulate. They might do something, it might not be a problem. So if you're making wine, you might choose to save a little bit of the fermentation and inoculate that fermentation into another vat. And that increases the likelihood that the yeast that you're currently working with isn't the same as the yeast you started off with. But that's fine, because so long as you like the flavors it's making, you're all good. Now, if we're talking about wine with critters on the front, where what you're looking for is, honestly, it's more like beer or more like soda than it is like, you know, better wine. You want consistency. That's where you have someone who's inoculating the same yeast into a vat over and over again. Each vat probably only needs to be inoculated once. But every time you have a new vat, you're going to put the same yeast strain deliberately into that vat. And you're going to sanitize the grape juice first. You're going to add SO2, which is an antimicrobial that's going to kill off other stuff that might be in the grapes coming into the winery. So that the Saccharomyces cerevisiae that you've specially chosen is, if not the only thing there, at least going to take over really fast. And a lot of large wineries have microbiologists on staff who are using microscopes and using uh, metabolic tests to check to make sure that the yeast that they're working with is the yeast they think they're working with. That sounds like a completely awesome dream job, actually. Don't, no, no, no. So, so, so it sounds like it should be, but you have to remember, a lot of this work happens during harvest where people are working insanely long hours really fast to process a huge amount of grapes coming in, because of course grapes ripen like during two months out of a whole year. So you are working insanely long hours, usually in a little glass room without windows in the middle of a big, hot, stuffy, smelly winery, processing a ton of samples. If something goes wrong, people are going to be looking at you and figuring out and, and, and asking, what did you screw up? It is a slog of a job. And you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It is a slog of a job. Crush my dreams, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I, wine is really romantic to drink, but not so romantic to make all the time. Now, you are somewhat involved in an interesting movement. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the relationships between yeast, and there are wild yeasts, and there are specific strains of yeast that we have domesticated. There is this movement to create a fully synthetic yeast. What does that mean? <laughs> That's, I'm really glad you asked that question first. 
Um, so it's important to, to point out that we have been, we humans have been working with yeast for a really long time. We've also been changing yeast deliberately for a really long time. So we've been breeding specific strains of yeast to do specific jobs or to have particular flavors for winemaking. Um, at the same time, but in a really different um, direction. So, so starting in a really different place, synthetic biology has cropped up as this field that uh, designs and builds things with DNA. So the premise of synthetic biology is that we can make DNA sequences to order uh, as precisely as someone designs them on a computer in laboratories by chemical processes. You can make those pretty efficiently. There are companies that specialize in delivering your DNA dreams to your doorstep. And once you have uh, a section of DNA designed according to what you think might might accomplish some particular kind of task. You can assemble those bits of DNA into longer and longer constructs, into longer and longer assemblies. So a lot of synthetic biology is about building circuits to make little logic gates like computers in E. coli and bacteria, uh, or about engineering a pathway that will link together enzymes from a couple of different species to allow yeast or bacteria to make some compound that it couldn't make before. Uh, another thing that synthetic biology has been doing, though, with this ability to design and build things with DNA is building whole genomes. And so far, that kind of work has only been done for bacteria with really, really tiny genomes because it's a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of DNA, DNA inside a creature when you think about it in terms of the number of base pairs that you have to pay attention to and have linked together. Uh, but enough work has been done with bacteria that a group of yeast biologists said, you know, we think we can do this with yeast. We think we can do this with a eukaryote. So eukaryotes are uh, creatures that have cells like us, like cells like human cells, cells with organelles inside, like nuclei and mitochondria. And those cells have generally more and more complex genomes, or larger and more complex genomes than bacteria do. Uh, so whenever someone says, Let's try doing something with a eukaryote. The first eukaryote they tend to turn to is our good old friend Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So I'm part of this, well, I'm associated with this project called Saccharomyces cerevisiae 2.0, which is the first synthetic biology effort to redesign and build an entire eukaryotic genome from laboratory synthesized DNA. And the idea here is that by starting with a really well-characterized Saccharomyces cerevisiae genome, so a, a genome that's already powering lots of successful little happy growing yeast cells, by starting with that DNA sequence and applying some rules to it, saying, okay, we're going to delete anything that we think isn't essential. We're going to remove a, about 8% of the genome. We're going to recode some of the genome so that, it, so that we think it will be easier for us to engineer in the future, or we think that it will be more stable over time. By applying those rules, uh, using a really fancy computer program to identify what DNA sequence you come up with then. Uh, and then essentially just building 16 chromosomes, chunk by chunk, these scientists are hoping to build a redesigned yeast genome. And so far they have, ooh, what's the, mm, how many chromosomes do they have done? This is a squishy number right now because we're coming up on a, on a new conference, but uh, more than half of the genome. There are people who are working on synthetic and genetically modified yeast, GMO yeast, for wine. Why would they want to do that? Mm, okay, so the first thing I want to say is that the vast majority of yeast used in wine are not GMO. I, I like that's just a really, really important point to make. The second point to make is that 
To the best of my knowledge, there are exactly two GMO yeasts currently on the market. They are only approved for use in North America, um, the United States and Canada, and Moldova, interestingly enough, though I don't know why. Um, And the more successful of the two, or the better known of the two, uh, is MLO1, which was developed at the University of British Columbia. Um, And the reason why that yeast is useful to winemaking is because it has the capacity to do not only alcoholic fermentation, but also this optional second kind of fermentation that a lot of wines go through called malolactic fermentation. Malolactic fermentation converts a stronger acid into a weaker acid and along the way makes buttery flavors. It's used in Chardonnay a lot, uh, but it, it sort of softens wine. And it's usually done by lactic acid bacteria, in particular by a bacteria called Enococcus enii. Uh, this genetically modified yeast has genes from Enococcus enii that allow it to do that second malolactic fermentation at the same time that it's doing alcoholic fermentation. And so not only does it make the winemaking process faster, but it also avoids needing to take some of the risks that you take when you introduce the, or when you allow the Enococcus enii to do that fermentation, um, like making some unwanted compounds like biogenic amines, which give some people headaches, uh, or risking making more, lact- uh, sorry, making more acetic acid vinegar, um, In the synthetic yeast project, the reason why wine ends up being important is because one of the partners in the project, one of the the groups involved, is the Australian Wine Research Institute, which, as the name suggests, is the leading wine research institute in Australia. It's one of the leading wine research institutes in the world. And genetically modified yeast is not currently approved for use in Australia, and their interest in the project isn't even necessarily about you know, making GM yeast that might someday be used in Australia. Though you could you, you could imagine that might someday happen. But their interest is really in learning more about the yeast. By building this new genome, the scientists involved are learning a lot about what genes are and aren't essential, what different genes do, how yeast works just on a, on a, on a global scale. And that information is really useful for designing new yeast strains or breeding new yeast strains through conventional methods, through non-genetically modified methods that might be able to produce new flavors. Or, you know, one of the big interests in the wine industry right now is reducing alcohol content. Um, Not everyone wants to be drinking wine that's 15% alcohol. It's probably better for us if it isn't. It's easier to drink in places that have pretty strict drinking and driving laws, but it's also sometimes tastes better. We don't want really high alcohol wines. So, the wine industry is working at ways to bring the, the alcohol level of wine down by finding yeasts that are less efficient at turning sugar into ethanol. And one of the ways of doing that might be through breeding yeasts that, that make different kinds of byproducts or that are less efficient in that process. And you mentioned there are only two kinds of this GMO yeast on the market. People kind of freak out at the idea of GMO yeast, especially GMO yeast making wine. Um, in fact, the, I'm going to butcher this name, Organisation Internationale de Vin de Vigne, which regulates oh, wine production. Was that right? You can call it the OIV. You can call it the OIV. Oh, I ruined it. Okay. <laughs> the oh, OIV. Oh, um, so they do not allow GMO yeast. You cannot sell wine made this way. Why do people not like it? Mm, That's a really complex question. Uh, So I think the first thing to say, yes, and I I wanted to emphasize again, two GM yeasts currently on the market, only approved for use in North America and Moldova, not in the EU, not in Australia, not in New Zealand. Uh, 
not in South Africa, and they aren't widely advertised. So you're not going to like find a bottle of wine that, that tells you proudly on the back, we use genetically modified yeast, because obviously people don't want to talk about this most of the time. I would um, buy it. <laughs> well, you're special. Um, I think there are a couple of concerns. The first concern that might come to people's mind might be about health and safety. So that's one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention with GM foods is, ooh, Frankenfood, is this safe to eat? That's not the place where we should be directing the most of our attention. I don't think that that's the biggest concern for GM food, and it's certainly not the biggest concern for GM wine. This is not about whether it's safe. It's about all of the cultural and economic and social implications of using a GM product. So for GM food and for GM wine, we have to think about why those GM yeasts are being, or those GM um, materials or GM creatures are being used. Who benefits from that? What's their motivation? You know, for Monsanto, um, GM corn and GM soybeans, a lot of the debate hasn't been about are these safe to eat or are the cows that eat them safe to eat? It's been about... Um, Monsanto profiting over small farmers who can no longer save seeds from one year to the next. So it's important to remember that those are concerns when we talk about GM yeast and GM wine too. Um, but I think that there's another thing going on with wine that might be less important for corn and soybeans, which is that wine is a really culturally important and culturally valuable thing. And we associate it with tradition, we associate it with particular places, we associate it with modes of production that we've had around for a really long time. And on the one hand, we could say, well, GM yeast would be another way of innovating in the wine industry. And we've seen a lot of innovations and they've been you know, great for developing different kinds of wine. On the other hand, some people might say, this is not for me. I want to continue um, preserve the traditions of my region, to use the yeasts that are native to my place, and to make a wine that I feel expresses my place and expresses um, the, the goals that I have for, for preserving our culture. Um, so it sort of comes down when you're asking why people are afraid of GM yeast to, you know, there's, okay, there's the generic, there's the generic fear of GM yeast, but also to what kinds of wines we're talking about and what people's motives are in making and in drinking them. Are you looking for an inexpensive, really super consistent bottle of wine with a creature on the front, bottle of wine with, a, with an animal on the front? Do you want something that's as cheap as possible? In that case, maybe GM wine would be a good thing for you because it might be made faster and with fewer mistakes that make someone have to dump a whole vat of wine. On the other hand, if you're drinking wine because you're interested in connecting with a sense of tradition and a sense of place and you're interested in a really diverse range of flavors, GM wine is probably not for you. Well, Erica, thank you so much for chatting with us. And I, for one, am very curious to meet our genetically modified yeast overlords. <laughs> overlords? Oh, I that, mm, that's a whole new conversation. <laughs> We've linked to more information about Erica Szymanski and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you will find links to our Twitter, our Facebook, and iTunes. Listen to us, subscribe, leave us a friendly review, because man, the reviews on our podcast are really old right now. So leave us a review. We've also got a link to our Patreon, where you can support us with a donation and get some nice Science for the People swag in return. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 